It's at this point in our event of Exodus that um, the Jewish people are now uh, have left uh, Egypt. They're on their journey to freedom at this point uh, to be able to go into the promised land. They have the freedom now to worship and serve God, and they're no longer under that bondage of Egypt. And so they're headed towards the promised land, the exact same place that God promised Abraham and his descendants back in Genesis chapter 15. And being that that is the case, you would just expect, you would just expect to, well, let's go the more direct route. Let's go the quickest route, the shortest route, the most direct way, which would have been the the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And if they had gone that way, it would have taken them maybe a little less than three weeks to get there. It's the shortest route, it's the most direct route. You know, this is kind of how you thought that God would kind of lead them. And yet, that is not the way that they went. And we often find that is the case when it comes to God's way. God's way isn't always the shortest way. As a matter of fact, I don't ever think it is the shortest way or the fastest way. It seems that it seems to more be a more, let's see if I could say this word because I stumbled it last night. This is a tough one. Circuitous way. I got it on the first one. I, I was, thank you. Thank you. I had to stop and say windy way. Um, I just couldn't get that one out, okay? Um, in Matthew seven fourteen, Jesus makes this declaration. He actually says, narrow is the gate. In order to get into right relationship with God, it's the narrow way. The gate is narrow. Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way to salvation except through the person of Jesus Christ. Nobody's getting into heaven except through the person of Jesus Christ. And a lot of people don't like to hear that. They say, oh, that's so narrow-minded. Well, narrow is the gate. Okay? And then once you're through, he says, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Understand, when you come to know Jesus, it gets difficult after that. You think it was difficult before? It wasn't. You were doing exactly what Satan and the world wanted you to do. Now, you, you might have had some difficult times doing that, all right? And through those difficulties, the Lord spoke to you, and, and, and you came to know Jesus through that. That's great. That's awesome. But know that now that you have Jesus, that road is going to be more difficult. Persecution is going to come your way. You're going to have to suffer like he has suffered. But the wonderful thing is, is he's with you every step of the way. Jesus says, in this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He's going to be with you every step of the way. And so as he's bringing them out of Egypt, their place of bondage, is it any wonder that the route that they now are going to take is going to have some difficulties and challenges and where they're going to have to look towards God to get them out of this situation that they're in? It seems to make sense. It seems to be God's way of doing that. And when he does that, it's always for two reasons. It's always for the reason of bringing God glory as well as developing his people in faith. We often think that God is being so difficult with me. He's not being difficult with you. He's developing you. And nobody gets developed through the easy road. 
Nobody does. It's through the difficulties and looking upon the person of Jesus that we grow and we understand he's got this. He's got this. Three things I notice in our journey with God and the journey that the Israelites are going on. One, God is always right in what he does. God is always right in what he does. And in the long run, because we can't see it in the short term, even though it's good in the short term, in the long run, this is always best for you as well. That's why we have Romans 8, 28 there. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purposes. When you're on the road that God wants you to be on, you're going down that road, then everything and anything that happens is for your own good. And God's going to work it out. God's going to work it out. Second thing I notice is that God is always faithful to help his people. Always. Not sometimes. Always faithful to help his people. Psalm thirty-three twenty. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 40, verse 17. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Hebrews 4, 16. I love this. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, find grace to help in time of need. I can always go before God. I can barge into his throne room at any time and ask for his help. And he tells us there, and you will find grace for help there in time of need. Well, in order for you to go to him and help in time of need, guess what? You're going to have to have a need. And I would say sometimes God brings it about to bring you in. And so we always have that available for us. Third thing, God is always present to guide his people. This week I was going over this and I came across a couple verses that I had never seen before. I, when, when someone dies and I do their memorial and or if I hear of someone who has just died, I usually send them a verse. A lot of times it's Psalm 116.15 that says, Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. I love that verse. Because they've made it home and that's precious in God's sight that they have made it home, you know. And yet I came across these verses this week that I'm just going, oh, this is kind of a different way of saying it. But it's the same thing in Psalm 48, 14. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. That, that's the journey. You know, the Lord's leading us to death, right? He's leading all his people to death, as, as horrible as that sounds, because when you, but when you understand it from the Christian perspective of when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you realize that death isn't the end, it's the beginning. So he, he leads us on our journey where this world ends, but the one for him forever in eternity begins. It's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that mortality is swallowed up by what? Life. What? Yeah, because that's when... Everything really begins for the believer being in the presence of their Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity. How wonderful that is. And until that time, God is guiding you until you come to that place where you're face to face with him. And I just love the way it says it there. And then in Psalm 73, it says it 
a little bit better in the sense that you hold me by my right hand, you will guide me with your counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. Euphemism, death. But I like that word better. Oh, I get to go to be with glory, you know. The psalmist in verse 48 should have used that instead of death, but still, same thing, same thing. It's a glorious, glorious moment when you take your last breath here and then you take your next one in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's if you're a believer in Jesus. Here in Exodus, we have God's presence leading the people of Israel. He has led them now out of Egypt, out of the bondage of Egypt in their journey to the promised land. And and God's presence can be seen as a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And as cool as that is, because believe me, I think that's pretty cool. What we have today as believers in Jesus is better. We actually have the Holy Spirit inside of us to lead and guide us. I want you to go to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says this. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, and he may abide with you forever. Well, who's this helper? Well, he goes on and says in verse 17, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, okay? Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How? Verse 26, by through the person of the Holy Spirit, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now go over here to John 16, verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. And so he's going to guide you in all truth. So the pillar of cloud, going back here to Exodus 14, the pillar of cloud that shows the presence of God to them in that uh, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire at night, as cool as that is and how that's going to lead them in their journey to the promised land, today the presence of the Lord through the Holy Spirit inside of you is way better. It's way better. It it's, goes along with what God's word says that we walk by faith, not by sight. And as we're going to see here in a moment, them walking by sight doesn't help them very much. Because they're going to see Pharaoh's army come and they're going to get all wigged out and you want to go, dudes, stop looking at the dust up over here and look at this amazing pillar of cloud that is the presence of God. But they're looking at this little dust up going on over here. <laughs> and God, it's, right, it's right there. But when you have God inside of you, that's way better. Is any wonder we're told to walk by faith, not by sight? 
Don't be looking for God. If you know Jesus, what are you looking for? The Holy Spirit is inside of you. Go boldly into his throne room. Ask whatever it is that you need to ask because you could do that at any moment. You can do that at any moment. So here in Exodus 14, verse 1, it starts off this way. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before, and this is a Hebrew word here, piakirot, piakirot, and it means mouth of the gorges or the mouth of the caverns. Between Migdol, Migdol means tower or fortress, and the sea, opposite Baal Zaphon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. Now, Baal, okay, is two words. Baal Zaphon is Baal, and it is a Canaanite Phoenician deity. This is not a place as in a town, so much as this is an area where they do idol worship. Okay, and the word Sephon means north or northward or north quarter, which means that this is probably because it's a Canaanite or a Phoenician deity, uh, um, people, a people group from the north of Egypt. What that tells us is that there is some sort of northern idol worship that is somewhat foreign to Egypt, but this is what the northern people uh, worship, okay, this deity or whatever. And... The word north here, Saphon, um, the ancients regarded the north, the area of Babylon and, and Canaan, as, as a place that's obscure and dark. And so again, that's speaking of Canaan and the Babylonian Mesopotamian region where they have all these idols that are really kind of unfamiliar to the Egyptians. They have their own idols. They got their own problems with their false gods and everything. But these are different deities and that they would normally worship there in Egypt. So I want to take a look at this possible route of the Israelite people. And so here, if you just look really briefly here at Exodus 13, verse 20, it says, so they took their journey from Sukkot and camped at Atom. Okay. And so this area right here, let's turn on my handy dandy little, there we go. This area right here, Itam, is how that's pronounced, is not, a, is not a town. It is a place. It's an area, I should say. Okay, it's an area. So we shouldn't discover a little township here called Itam or anything else. It is actually an area of wilderness that they came to and camped out in this wilderness area right here. Now, there are some people that say that, you know, uh, that the, that the uh, Dead Sea crossing took place right here, you know. Seems to make sense. It's a smaller area. You know, they say that it's not very deep right there. They even say that there was a land bridge there, even though they can't really find the land bridge. But it's not very deep right there. Um, be a perfect place for God to, you know, separate the waters and, and have them cross over. Okay, but the, the problem there is, is that the... Um, the area of Atom is not anywhere over here, okay? As a matter of fact, the Bible makes it very clear that it's an area. I want you to go over here to Numbers 33. Go to Numbers 33. Here we're recounting uh, um, kind of a summary of where the Israelites came from out of Egypt, and it kind of shows how they came out of Egypt and 
and uh, gives a little summary here of how they uh, left Egypt and got to the place where they are. And so in Numbers 33, verse 5, it says, Then the children of Israel moved from Ramesses, camped in Sukkot. They departed from Sukkot, camped at Atom, which is on the edge of the wilderness. Kind of looks like an edge right there if you're going to do something here, you know, kind of the edge there with the Gulf of Aqaba right there. Um, they moved from Atom, turned back to Piak Erot. So wherever that is, I think we're going to be able to show it's right there, okay? Um, and it says, which is east of Baal Safan, and they camped near Migdol, okay? They departed from before Akerot and passed through the midst of the sea. That would be the Red Sea. Somewhere here, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. Okay, they came across. And then where did they land as soon as they went across? It says right here, the midst of the sea into the wilderness went three days journey in the wilderness of what? Atom. So they started at Atom crossed the sea, and we're still in Atom, which tells us it's not a town. It's an area. The wilderness right here is qualified now. It's the wilderness of Atom. And you can see how the wilderness could be around here that goes down here. They believe that the wilderness of Shore is right here. I don't know how Shore, but they believe <laughs> it's, it's here somewhere. And so they're in Midian as well, and we'll, we'll go over those kind of things as, as we get there. And so we know that Atom is an area of wilderness. Now, okay, there's no place called Atom over here. There's no place if they crossed over here three days. None of this is Atom, okay? Oh, my battery's going out. And so, uh, so this right here we could see is, a, is Atom, and if you have spiritual eyes, you can still see that dot, right? <laughs> And, and you just got to believe now, walk by faith. Um, that that's, that's the area that I'm pointing to. So, uh, so again, un- understand as we're putting these things together, I believe that there's a better understanding of where the crossing is than other people have an understanding of it, okay? Because um, a lot of maps that you can get, you, you can show that, no, they came down here and they crossed down to the bottom part, and I have a map that shows Atom being over there. Yeah, but you'll never have a map that shows Atom on the other side where Midian is. Dave, why do we have these other maps? Because these other maps came about once people thought for close to, I would say, 1,800 years that the crossing of the Red Sea happened right here at the Bitter Lakes. And so because it happened here, then we got to start putting all these things that we see down here. But when you actually look at maps of people that understood the area at the time of Paul, at before the time of Paul and stuff like that, you, you don't see those kind of maps. Those maps you see comes from their understanding of, 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 of the Red Sea crossing happening up here. And so because that, now all those places that we mentioned in, in chapter 33 of, of Numbers has to be happening here, and then they see right there is where Mount Sinai is, um, but that's not where Mount Sinai is. We know it's over here. Okay. So, and there's, as, we, as we go through this, I hope 
that the evidence kind of shows you the direction that we're kind of taking you here. Now, in, uh, again, in chapter 14, verse 2 of Exodus, it says, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Piach Erot and be- between Migdol and the sea opposite Baal Safan, and you shall camp before it by the sea. Okay, so again, it says turn there in verse 2. So they're at Atom, and they turn. And look at this. If this is the wilderness of Atom, they turn. They, they, they got to go this way. You can't turn back. There's no water to cross if you do that. You can't turn in that direction. No water to cross up there. So the only place that they can turn that makes sense is for them to turn and go into this area. Now, why is that important that they go in that area? Because verse 3, verse 3 says, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. The word bewildered there in the Hebrew is buch, and it means entangled. Now, in order for the Israelites to be entangled in the land, it would seem to suggest to be in an area of winding wadis or valleys or canyons surrounded by mountains and to where then you're hemmed in in such a way that there is no way out. Well, look at this next. So you come from over here, you go through this little area right here, and then you come to this beach, Nueve Beach, and, and if, the, and if uh, Pharaoh's army comes this way, you can see there's no way out. There's no way out. Atom at the area at the top of the Gulf of Aqaba, and then you kind of meander way through and, and go to this area there. You're now entangled, and you're on this beach, and there's no way out. There's no way out. Remember that Piakirot means mouth or of the gorges. Well, look at this. Yeah, kind of looks like the mouth, and there's the gorge right there. <laughs> Does this one work better? Oh, and it's green. I like green. Thank you. I started getting tired of red. I like that. Thank you so much, Joy. And so, again, you can see right here that as they come down here on the beach area right here, um, that it is like a mouth and the gorge right there. Mouth of gorges. Let's look at another picture here. This is uh, five miles long down to over here, okay? And so this is where we're going to see amygdala is down here, a fortress, all right? And so you could see that this looks like this could be the area. You could, you could put 3 million people there, by the way, okay? And so it's a huge beach area. Um, this next slide here is the fort, is the Migdal, okay? And so this is, uh, was discovered, I think, back in like 1975 or something like that. Let's show the next one. They're reconstructing it. So you can see the old wall right there, but they're reconstructing it. Here's part of that old wall. So, um, and whatever they're going to make it a tourist attraction or whatever, I'm not exactly sure. But there's something else that was discovered in this area, which I think is kind of important, okay? In, in 1978, a column was found on Nueva Beach, okay? On the other side, in Saudi Arabia, across the way, another column was found. On this column, on the Arabia side, 
Okay, that pillar has now been removed. On the Egyptian side, it's still there, but most of the inscription has been washed off and everything else. On the Arabian side, the inscription was not washed off. Go back to the other picture. And on that monument, it said this. This monument is erected by King Solomon, king of Israel, in honor of Yahweh in commemoration of the crossing of the Red Sea. I think that's kind of important. I mean, archaeologists always wish, man, if someone just put a marker, you know, it'd make it so much easier. But because the guy who discovered it, Ron Wyatt, and he wasn't uh, schooled in archaeology like those who go to school and get their doctorate and PhD and study and know the language and everything else, but because... He's, he was kind of a weekend warrior. His fascination, his interest there, he schooled himself in a lot of things. But because he's the one that discovered it, n- nobody wants to give him credit for one or recognize other things that he talks about in the Bible. See, he just took the Bible and went by the direction of the Bible. And, and he came upon this in 1978, and it was toppled over. Half of it was covered with sand and things like that. And he is the one that found it in 1978. They go across the sea directly on the other side. They see this other pillar as well that has that inscription on it. And since then, the Saudi Arabia government has taken it down, has put a little plaque there instead. It's in their museum. Okay. Um, And so, again... If I was going to begin, now that I know all this stuff, an understanding of where the Red Sea crossing is, I, I would go to where Solomon, besides Jesus, the wisest man that ever lived, I would think if he put a marker there, that that's probably where it happened. Just a hunch. So... the. We kind of have these markings. We kind of know, if you were to ask me, where this took place. Now, in Exodus 14, verse 3, it says, For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. As we saw, that seems to make perfect sense. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. I will gain honor over Pharaoh, over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And they did so. Remember, this is God telling Moses, Pharaoh still going to come after them. When he told them that, it was obviously before Pharaoh came after them. So when Pharaoh does come after him and the whole nation of Israel at that point on the beach sees them, they're all freaking out. Well, Moses knew ahead of time that that was going to happen. And as terrible as Egypt's plagues had been, something more was still needed to humble Pharaoh and his subjects. And that is, he still had a pride problem. He still had a pride problem. Pharaoh is going to see how vulnerable Israel becomes as as he hears. He probably has fortresses along the way 
Um, he has uh, Egyptian scouts seeing where the, the Israelite population is going. They're running back. They're saying, hey, they're getting entangled in the land. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what's happening. And they ended up on this beach. And they have the Red Sea in front of them. They have this mountainous area behind them. They're trapped. And this is exactly what God wanted Pharaoh to think. Left alone with his pride, Pharaoh begins to regret letting the children of Israel go. God, who made the earth and everything in it, is a great, great God. God, who brings Israel out of Egypt, is a great, great God. He knows what is best. He is faithful to help us. He is such a great God, he can work out everything for his glory. So what he is setting up here is going to bring about his glory. And it's going to bring him honor. In Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Firmament shows his handiwork. Romans 11.36, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, because everything is meant to bring glory to God. His glory is great in your salvation, Psalm 21, 5. Psalm 24, 10, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. God is the king of glory because all glory needs to go to him. Everything that is accomplished needs to bring him glory. Dave, what is it with God that he needs all this glory? Why does he think he's all that? Um, Because he's all that. (laughs) He is God and there's no one like him. So he always moves from the point that it will bring him glory. It's one of the reasons why after God destroys Pharaoh's army later on, that before they go into the promised land and they send spies there in Jericho, that Rahab who has, uh, uh, who the, the Israelite spies are visiting Rahab, it says in Joshua 2.10 that she says this, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. The glory of what God did there has now gone to the other foreign nations and they are giving God glory for that. They understand that was the God of the Hebrews, the one who's created the heavens and the earth. And she would go on to say, for the Lord... Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and earth beneath. She came to her own understanding of that because no other God can do that. And so this is going to bring God's glory. And so the strategy of God of turning them there at Atom, the wilderness of Atom, and, and then making them go through the wadis and bringing them out on that beach looks like a military blunder on Israel's part. They've entangled themselves. There's no way out. And so Pharaoh then sends his army to go get them. But God says this, I will gain honor over Pharaoh, over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. Exodus 14, 4. This strategy seems to be familiar with God. He suckers the enemy into thinking they're about to have this amazing victory only to annihilate them. He uses this strategy a lot with his enemies. He suckers them in with pride. 
We see this when it comes to Jesus, his son, on the cross. To Satan, must have seemed like Jesus had no idea what he was doing. He was God's son, yet he allowed himself to be handed over to sinful men. And these men stripped him, beat him, crucified him. And on the cross, Jesus must have seemed so vulnerable. Satan must have thought he had the strategic advantage, and he pressed it to the point of death. But we know this was his undoing. This was Satan's fatal mistake. Because the cross was not a defeat for Jesus, it was his victory. I want you to go to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, Colossians 2 verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and we can, instead of you, we could say we. (laughs) We being dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses. How? Verse 14, having wiped out that word there, is a word that means uh, to, to whitewash over, to obliterate, erase, to blot out. The handwriting of requirements, that would be the law, okay? Um, all things that condemned us as being sinners and breaking the law, that handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, it says we're a sinner, okay, guilty of our sin. He has what? Taken it out. The word taken there is a Greek word to carry off, never to be seen again. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's where it stayed. Our sin has now been nailed onto the cross, taken away, never to be seen again. And by doing this, it says in verse 15, he has disarmed principalities and powers spiritual darkness and he made a public spectacle of them triumph over them in it jesus went to paradise for three days and then three days later he rose from the dead to show that death had no power over him and now he holds the keys of death satan no longer does he triumphs in giving his perfect life to be a sacrifice for sin suckered Satan and everybody in thinking this is where they're going to have their marvelous victory over Jesus and it was their undoing. Pride. Pride. Dying on the cross, Jesus made payment, atonement for sin, thus gained victory over death for all of mankind, bringing salvation to mankind. Remember we just read in that psalm how salvation brings glory to God. Our salvation brings glory to God. Interesting that, going back here to Exodus 14, interesting that all the plagues that hit Egypt, their army was never touched. All kings take pride in their armies. So Pharaoh's feeling pretty confident right now that he can go back and get the people. 
because he has his army. Verse 5 of Exodus 14 says, Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. The heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. They are now thinking all our building projects, now we're going to have to do since we don't have this slave force. You know, all the things that we want to do to make this great kingdom, we now have to do it. We don't have this massive slave force in order to do this. Why did we do this again? Why did we let them go? How quickly we forget. Oh, I don't know, the 10 plagues, maybe. I think that was probably a good indication you probably let them go. But no, they've forgotten about all that. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots, the best of the military machinery they have, 600 of these amazing chariots. It doesn't mean they only took 600 chariots. These are the 600 of the best chariots. Because then it says, and all the chariots of Egypt. Well, how many is that? I don't know. Probably more than 600. Probably thousands. Okay, they took the rest of the chariots as well, but they had 600 of the shiniest and the ones with the, uh, the, the, you know, the reinforced, uh, you know, axles underneath and, you, you know, and all, all the other gizmos that probably come out that when they're driving by you, they're mowing you down at the same time. Impressive stuff. Impressive stuff. And it says, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness, so the Egyptians pursued them. And all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, overtook them camping by the sea besides Piakirot before Baal-Safan. Again, remember that we've gone over this. When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he's strengthening what is already in Pharaoh's heart. God is giving Pharaoh the strength to do what his own evil desire wants to do. God is squeezing out what is already in Pharaoh's heart, which is pride. Sometimes we think that once we receive Jesus and we're no longer in Satan's kingdom, we're now in God's kingdom, that Satan is going to let us go easily. We think that once we've left his kingdom, he forgets about us. He does not. Now, he can't, like Pharaoh, try. Pharaoh's thinking, I could bring him back into my kingdom. Satan knows that once you receive Jesus, you can never be part of his kingdom again. But he can still go after you, and he does go after you in order to scare you and make you ineffective for the kingdom of God. He can distract you so you can be ineffective for the kingdom of God. He can't take you away from God, but he certainly doesn't want you to be effective for the kingdom of God. And he can certainly keep you from doing that. And so here, Pharaoh pursues Israel. And look what happens in verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, The Egyptians marched after them, so they were afraid, very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Why why are you afraid? Well, well, look, they're coming. Look at the dust up there. Uh, Okay, turn around. Look, Look at the big, amazing pillar of cloud that represents God with you. What are you afraid of? 
of that dust up over there. What's the big deal? Well, because this is Egypt, their army. Their army is the most powerful army in the world. Are are you sure about that? Because God has an army, Lord of hosts, and that huge, amazing pillar of cloud which shows that God is with you. What are you worried about that over there? Huge, mighty, huge, mighty, great God. Itty bitty army over there. What are you worried about? But but they are. Because their eyes are on the... In Exodus 13, 21 22, the Lord went before them by day in the pillar of cloud to lead the way, and night in the pillar of fire to give them light as they go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people, never left. It was always there in their journey. And God is always with you in your journey. I want you to go to Matthew 14 22. It's one of my favorite areas of scripture about Peter. We all love Peter. You know, I think we all see ourselves in Peter. Um, yet you always hear people say, oh, I can identify with Peter. Oh, Peter, I, I can identify with Peter. Nobody ever says, I can identify with James. <laughs> Nobody ever says that, you know. And yet James is a stellar guy. I love James. I love Matthew. I love all these guys. But we, but we seem to see more blunders with Peter more uh, personality with Peter than anyone else. That personality seems to just jump off the pages, you know. And so here in chapter 14, Peter, we have here in verse 22, uh, this is when Jesus walks on water. Must have been just an amazing sight, you know. And it says here, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. If he sends me to the other side, how is Jesus going to get to the other side and meet him? I, I believe there's a little bit of faith there by the disciples saying he's the son of God. He, he'll get to where he needs to go. Okay, so he's telling us to go. We need to go. They've gotten to this point in their relationship with him that if Jesus says do something, you just do it. You don't even ask questions anymore. Okay, now they do later on, but there are some lessons they've already learned. And, and so at this point, they're going, he's sending us, we're going. He says to go, we're going to go. So they do. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. In verse 24, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by waves, so the wind was contrary. So it's boisterous. There's winds, there's waves. They can't quite make it to the other side. They're stuck in the middle there. Well, what time is this? How long have they been rowing? Well, if it was at dusk, about before evening time, and he sends them off at that point, it says here in verse right now, in the fourth watch, that's between 3 and 6 a.m. So if they left at 6 p.m., and it's now 3 a.m., or maybe it was 7 p.m. Or, or somewhere around that, that's over six hours of trying to row across and, and now fighting against the wind and the waves. And they didn't turn around and come back. They're still going in the direction they're supposed to go, but the wind is current. You have to know that they're tired. They're tired at this point. And so 
Now in the fourth watch between 3 and 6 a.m. of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. That had to be just an amazing thing to see. You know, you know, water lapping up in the boat and they're just trying to row and get over there and just hang on there and all that kind of stuff. And as they look out, all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the water. And they were troubled, you think? And they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. How how do you think they cried out? Oh, we're going to die. Oh, no, this is going to work. Look, now we've seen Jesus' ghost. Oh, everything's bad. And immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, I'm kind of wondering, he's walking by on water. Like, did he walk by and then walk back? And he'd walk by, and everybody's going, it's his ghost, and walk back. No, it's I. Be of good cheer. It's me. It's Jesus. Or was he going around the boat, <laughs> walking around the boat? What was he doing? Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, and we all love this about Peter. Peter doesn't think about anything. He just wants to be like Jesus. He sees what Jesus does, and he says, I want to do that. I want to do that, you know. And so Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I love that. I know I can't just do this on my own. You know, you have to command me, you know. A lot of times when we go to Israel, you know, we're out there in the Sea of Galilee and, and, and people want to be able to walk on water. And sometimes when you're out there, you know, all of a sudden you hear a splash. And so then I have to walk out there and get him. And so (laughs) if it is you, command me to come to you in the water. And he says, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on water. You should have that underlined. We always seem to go to the point how he sank. But he walked on water to go to Jesus. Well, the only way you can walk on water to go to Jesus is if your eyes are on Jesus. That's, that's the whole key to that. God said to do it, to come. Your eyes are on Jesus. That's the only way you can come to him. If you're looking down here the whole time, you're going to wander off, you know. But he had his eyes on the Lord, and he was walking on Water, big, glorious, Jesus himself. And the storm around him. But he was walking on water. He was doing it. He was doing it. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, oh, man, keep your eyes on Jesus. He was afraid. Why? It's Jesus right there who told you to come. Dude, you're doing it. You're walking on water. Keep going. But he took his eyes off of Jesus. He noticed the wind and how scary that was and and, and looking down at the waves moving around. And and, and what happens here? He said, and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Now, literally in, in 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 the Greek, it says, Lord, save me, glub, glub, glub. That's kind of left out here. 
And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him and said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Come on. 